We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey there. We at BlueWire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. Terry Rozier, he'll be the next starting point guard of the Charlotte Hornets. Step back, wide open, and it's good! Terry Rozier! All right, welcome in to another Buzz Beat, your favorite Charlotte Hornets podcast. This episode is brought to you by our partners, Bet Online. Visit betonline.ag and enter code BLUEWIRE to receive your 100% welcome bonus. By supporting them, you are supporting this podcast. This is Richie, and I'll be bringing you guys another Vintage Hornets podcast. The last one I did was with Gil McGregor, and we discussed the first ever playoff series win back in 1993. This episode is going to be more current and focus on the 2000-2001 team who came the closest ever uh, in franchise history to reaching the Eastern Conference final. So this one is not going to end on a high note uh, and we're not going to be reliving a series in which they won, but more talking about this team as a whole and the progress that they made and how close they came back in 2001 in the playoffs uh, and advancing to that Eastern Conference final. So let, let's first start off by talking about this team back in the 2000 offseason because it was a big one for Charlotte. Charlotte was coming off a first-round exit to Allen Iverson and the 76ers in the 2000 playoffs. And Eddie Jones, who was really good for the Hornets uh, for that season and a half that he was with the team, um, he also created a, a strong bond with Baron Davis. And their relationship actually predated their time with the Charlotte Hornets. Anyways, Eddie Jones was becoming a free agent. Uh, he led the NBA in steals. He led Charlotte in scoring. Uh, so he definitely was a big-time piece that was going to be hitting free agency. Now, there were rumors out there that he was interested in, and Chicago was interested in him. But the more likely destination, the destination that I think that he was probably most interested in, was his hometown team of the Miami Heat. But the issue with this was that the Heat at this time 
could only sign him for $2.25 million. Uh, this was a, an exception that they had. Uh, it's the most money that the Heat could have offered him. So the one way to get around this, to get around the money, was through a sign-in trade. So Jones signed a seven-year deal and then was dealt in this nine-player deal that sent Jamal Mashburn and P.J. Brown and Otis Thorpe, to name a few, on their way to Charlotte while Eddie Jones, Anthony Mason, Ricky Davis, uh, just to name a few from that end, going to Miami. So very, very big deal here with nine players involved, but the players that I mentioned were probably the most prominent ones that you saw with the team. So this roster heading into the season consisted of Baron Davis, Wesley, and then you had your recently acquired Mashburn and P.J. Brown, and then you had Eldon Campbell, who actually had been acquired with Eddie Jones a couple seasons prior. And then on the bench, they had Derek Coleman, they had Eddie Robinson, they had Jamal McGlure. This Hornets team had a good mixture of young pieces and veteran pieces that led them in this season. And through the first 50 games of this season, they were 25 and 25, 500. In the final 32 games, the team went 21 and 11 to finish the season 46 and 36 and finish third in the Central Division and sixth overall in the East. Now, what's interesting about this season is that they were the sixth seed, so they played the three seed, and the three seed was the Miami Heat, clearly favored and had home court advantage in this playoff round. Now, you know, there's history with Miami as well with the, the sign-and-trade that just happened during the offseason, and they were going to be facing off in the first round of the playoffs. Now, if you guys remember the, the headband years, uh, or the headband year, by the way, th this was the year. This was the Hornets. This was the year that the Hornets, for whatever reason, in solidarity as a team, wore headbands during the playoffs. And even the team gave out headbands, I believe, in some of their playoff games. I know they gave out one in a game that I went to. But this this game, or this series, I should say, with the Miami Heat, was not close. It wasn't a close series at all. Five-game series back then in the first round, uh, the Hornets swept the Heat. Heat in that series only led for about 12 minutes total. Like, it was crazy how lopsided these scores were. Uh, Mashburn, Barron, Wesley were the three leading scorers. Uh, and surprisingly, Eddie Robinson had a very good series, shooting 78% from the floor in those three games and averaged 12 points and five rebounds. He was not as effective uh, when he played against the Bucks. So moving on to the second round, the Hornets did have more of a layoff than the Bucs. Uh, the final game of the series against Miami was April 27th, while the Bucks played in their first-round series up until May 1st. So the series against the Bucks didn't start until May 6th. So Charlotte had nine days off, which for any team just can't be easy, you know, to have that much rust going into the series. They were also facing a number two seed in the conference led by Ray Allen, Sam Cassell, and, and, and big dog Glenn Robinson. And game one was played on May 6th, and it happened to be at 11.30 a.m. local time in Milwaukee. That was another weird thing, working against Charlotte, and, and they dropped the opener 104-92. to The team was down as much as 22 points in that opening game. But it, it did get close. It got close at points. And game two was actually very similar in the sense that 
Charlotte got off to a slow start, but did make a late push in the game in the second half. Now, game two, there was an interesting play late in the third quarter. And this is a question I'll be asking our guest later in the show about is that Coleman got a technical for walking off the court. He had an injury, I believe, to his back, and he never told Paul Silas about this. So Silas, thinking that Coleman was still in the game, had four men out on the court, and that was a technical foul. And just to let you know the final score of that game in Game 2, it was 91-90. to It's hard not to think about that incident in the third quarter with Derek Coleman and him just walking off the court without communicating to Paul Silas considering it was a one-point game, considering the Charlotte Hornets could have split uh, the first two games in Milwaukee, now they're heading back to Charlotte, where they're clearly going to feel more comfortable on their home court, but now they're down 0-2, and they can't lose game three. We're about to go into those infested waters. It's like, you know, being out there with a bunch of sharks. I'm sure they're going to be a raucous crowd down there. So that was Ray Allen uh, talking about after game two, heading to game three and game four down in Charlotte, a raucous crowd. Now, the, the Hornets at this time, the attendance was dwindling because of the thought of uh, relocation with this team. But game three and four were much better for the Hornets. The Hornets were much more energetic, and Mashburn played lights out in both games three and four, scoring 36 and 31 points in those games. And winning both of those games, now they have tied the series back up to two, and it's basically a best-of-three series now. Now, they have to, you know, heading back to Milwaukee, Charlotte has to steal a game on the road. Whether that's game five or game seven, it just had to happen for Charlotte. And Charlotte did just that in game five. They went into Milwaukee, won 94-86, and they had an opportunity to come back home in game six and win the series at home. As we know, as Hornets fans, the rest is history. Uh, they lost those last two games of the series. I was actually at Game 6, that home game in which they could have wrapped the series up, uh, and it definitely was deflating to know that even though there was another opportunity in Game 7, it felt like that was the opportunity that was missed, and they, they couldn't take it back because they were up, I believe, as much as like 15 points in that game six and they blew their opportunity if you check my twitter i have a thread on game seven uh, but i did enjoy watching going back and watching bits and parts of the series game seven was the only game that i watched in its entirety uh, but it was interesting to see how this team played uh, maybe compared to the previous team that i watched back in 1993 the spacing again is still not great but the funny thing is it felt like the Hornets, they fed Mashburn a lot. They like to run these little UCLA cuts uh, where, you know, Baron Davis might be coming off a cut, a high screen at, at the free throw line, and he kind of makes his way through the baseline and sets a cross screen for Jamal Mashburn. And uh, they, they ran a lot of post-ups for Eldon Campbell, a lot of post-ups for Jamal Mashburn. And Baron Davis, he had some really good games. He was probably the best Hornet in Game 7. Uh, but it felt like he was more of a distributor at this point. Uh, but he, he hit the occasional layup amongst traffic and the occasional three. Jamal Mashburn in Game 6 and Game 7 especially did not play his best and the uh, games three and four, he was he was lights out. He was lights out in game three and four. But in game six, in which it mattered, in which the Hornets could have wrapped up this series, he did not show up. But again, the Hornets had an opportunity, uh, and they just didn't quite take advantage of it.
So we're going to get to the second half of this episode uh, with a person that had access inside the locker room for a week for the Hornets' first four games of this series, and we'll get to him after this break. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on, or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino in Blackjack. All open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, or even the weather. Visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE. Bet online, your online wagering experts. All right, as promised, guys, we have a guest that had some inside access to the Hornets during this playoff series. We've got John Wertheim joining us today. You can find his work on Sports Illustrated. He's also an analyst on the Tennis Channel and a correspondent for 60 Minutes. John, how's everything going with you today? Uh, not, not bad, all things considered. Um, but, uh, yeah, crazy, crazy time. Yeah, before we get into this, what have you been doing to, like, occupy your time during this quarantine? Uh, it's a good question. I, mean, I think all of us that work in sports are sort of uh, wrestling with this. Um, you know, 60 Minutes is still going strong, and I've got a book I've got to get finished. So in, in some ways, it's, it's been business as usual. But mm-hmm. obviously, you know, personally, family, it's, um, you know, never, I don't, no, none of us have been through this before. So right. We're all trying to, every cliche about day by day uh, suddenly doesn't sound like such a, a sports cliche after all. Yeah, it's definitely a day-by-day thing, and it's just things like are just changing minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour. Uh, so, guys, we're going to take a trip down memory lane and revisit an article uh, that John released back in a Sports Illustrated back in May 2001. So I'm, I'm having him try to remember this thing as best as he can. The article was titled Behind Closed Doors, and he gave us an inside look on the Hornets as they were playing the Bucks in the Eastern Conference semifinals. Now, John, with all the sports that you've covered over the years and how long ago this was, like how much of a recollection do you actually have of this week in this story? Oh, man. I mean, now that you brought it, this is not something I thought about for a while, but now that you've brought it up, um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember pretty well and have a lot of fond uh, recollections. I, mean, I, I don't want to come across like the, the back-in-my-day old man, but um, – I'm not sure a lot of NBA teams are giving uh, access to reporters uh, during the playoffs anymore. So in some ways, it's kind of a it was kind of a dated exercise. But um, no, it was it was a ton of fun, and it was you know it was it was a weird time for the NBA. It was a weird time, sort of for the Hornets franchise. I think it was mm-hmm. after you know it was after Larry Johnson and Morning, and you know George Shin has sort of gone through some of his issues. And I think that probably contributed to it, but no, I mean, I, I have a lot of fond memories from that week. It was um, a lot of a lot of good people, and uh, it was a really good kind of inside glimpse of uh, of an NBA team during, you know, dur- during one of the biggest weeks of their season. Yeah, it's definitely some access that you don't normally see. Uh, the first person I would like to talk about is Paul Silas, Coach Paul Silas. Uh, you made a mention uh, in your 
article that he was very direct and very short, I guess short might not be the right word, but just very direct, a man of few words uh, when it comes to like his huddles and his pregame speeches and everything like that. What did you learn and or remember about him as a coach? And then also how maybe the players responded and respected Paul Silas in that type of communication? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember thinking like, man, I wish I could have played for a coach like this or my, my you know, my, my son could play for a coach like this. I mean, I, I thought he was terrific and he had credibility. He was a former player, a good former player. He had no interest in being friends with the kids. He was, he was pretty old school. I mean, he did not want to be the player's coach. Um, he had some fairly uh, strong feelings. He was, he was just a wonderful, warm, honest broker. And I know that, you know, I, I remember some players took to him more than others. Uh-huh. It was a certain style. I mean, he was not coddling these guys. It was a lot of kind of back in my day. And, you know, he played on Celtics teams. And if you wanted to make lunch, you went to the back of the, you know, you went to the back of the bus and you made yourself a goddamn sandwich. And I remember him sort of, he would laugh at some of the, uh, the luxuries that these players had. And he had a lot of kind of old school views about basketball and playing tough. And he was a big, you know, blue collar kind of player, a power forward and played a lot of, you know, played good defense. And that came out in his coaching and some players loved him. I, mean, I remember some, some players saw him as a father figure and others, I think he was probably uh, a little too rigid for. Yeah. I mean, you made a mention of this, but he's, he's, he's an old school guy. Like he, he played in an era where opponents weren't as friendly with each other as they are today. You made a mention that the fact that in the article that Silas might not have been too happy with how the players mingled after the games, like Hersey Hawkins was ex teammates with Irvin Johnson and those two mingled. Do you know if Silas ever tried to get that point across to his team about being too friendly or did he just kind of accept the fact that this is the way things are now? Yeah, I think probably the latter on that one. And I think I do remember Hershey Hawk is A, another great guy, and B, I think he was someone who really appreciated Paul Silas. Um, and I think he had a sort of a, a ribbing way of dealing with these guys. So I don't think he would say, hey, listen, I need a minute of your time. I think it would be, he would have approached that more with a joke. Like, you know, if you, uh, you, you do know he plays for another team, don't you? I think Paul Silas picked his battles. He was very direct with us. I mean, he was great. He was just great guy to talk to and you know we would sort of sit around and after practice and he knew that tape recorder was on and he was sort of blunt about the challenges and he had some I remember he had some frustrations with with ownership and the front office and he was basically just like I'm, I'm too old to play politics here here's what I feel um but it's funny you mentioned Hershey Hawkins because he a, a he was a great guy and I actually had known him a bit from Seattle so mm-hmm. um I'd had a bit of a relationship, and he was one of the guys who actually, I think, really took favorably into it. He was sort of the towards the tail end of his career at the time, but he really was. Uh, I remember he he was one of the guys who was quite fond of Paul Silas. Yeah, it might have been of his his last season. He didn't play a whole lot in that playoff series, if at all. But uh, it's always nice to have that veteran presence on your on your bench, at least. And I and I covered this in the first half of the podcast, but Charlotte lost Game Two in Milwaukee by one point. And what we also know happened in that game was the fact that Derek Coleman received a technical 
and he received it because he never communicated with Silas that he was going back to the locker room and the Hornets only had four players on the court. Now, I don't think in sports, like any sport, you can never point to one single play costing you the game, but that type of decision or lack of communication definitely loomed large in that game uh, because the Hornets only lost the game by one point. And you made mentions of this here and there in the article about certain players gravitating to Derek Coleman and maybe certain players who didn't gravitate towards Derek Coleman. And I don't necessarily want to make this a bigger deal than it was, but like, if you can remember, like how divisive of a player was Derek Coleman on this team? You know, it's funny. I, I, I should have reread this article, but I do remember he was this, this real sort of polarizing force. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, not just, not just coach Silas, but a lot of people were concerned that, uh, you know, were, were you going to go with the side of good or the side of, uh, of not good? And I, as I recall it, Paul Silas felt pressure to play Derek Coleman, who had been this, this all-star, this talented player. He was sort of, you know, had his reputation. And I think it was pretty well earned at that point. And there were a lot of young players. I, you know, I remember Baron Davis, one of them. And it was sort of this, uh, you know, fight for the soul of Baron Davis. And some of the, some of the, sort of the knucklehead contingent had already cast their lot with Derek Coleman and some of the guys that were, you know, probably more mature, the, the Hershey Aachen type, did not have any interest in Derek Coleman. I mean, Derek Coleman was sort of everything Paul Silas wasn't, but it was really sort of this, this classic movie script of uh, sort of the, the, the bad apple and the cancer metastasizing the team and how many of these guys were going to go with D.C. and how many of these guys were going to go with the old school coach. And I remember there was sort of this um, – there were sort of murmurs about how this was kind of the, the, the battle for Baron Davis. And if some of, uh, you know, I probably, probably shouldn't name names, but if some of the um, more expendable players wanted to go out with DC and wanted to laugh at his jokes and wanted to sort of uh, go down that road, that was okay. But Baron Davis was the guy that uh, I think a lot of people on the coaching staff in the front office wanted to make sure he did not fall under the spell of, uh, Yeah, he was a young player at that time uh, and probably trying to follow the right players and the right coaches is always a hard thing when you enter the league. Now, you made a a great stat in this article. Uh, First off, Coleman did not play for the rest of the the postseason there, and there was some debate whether or not he was still ailing from that back issue or if he could really just give it a go. There's there's a little bit of debate behind that, and you had an awesome stat, like I said, about D.C., which I'm going to go ahead and share. During the regular season, Charlotte was 12-22 and when Derek Coleman played and they were 34 and 14 when he did. So that kind of points to some things about maybe if you're making an argument about, well, you know, what if the Hornets had Derek Coleman for those last five games? Could they have won the series? Which I'm sure you can make that argument, but you know, they still played well or they played better without him on the court. You also made a mention of this in your article and, you know, you know, spending time with this team on the road and also two games at home you know, just being around, around these guys and how that energy and mentality is different. Can you share a little bit about that, how the players were just more comfortable at home versus on the road? Yeah, it's, it's funny because, you know, we all know about home court advantage. Right. And, and certainly statistically, I don't. There, there has never been an NBA season where cumulatively road teams have won more than home teams. I mean, home teams, this home court advantage is something that's very real. It has been for as long as the NBA has been around. Even though the, the competition is tougher in the, in the playoffs, it holds them too. And I really felt it that, you know, you, you walk into Milwaukee and you're sort of, this, this was, I mean, granted, you know, this is 20 years ago, but you're dependent on 
the other team's catering for your for your meals. They don't know what kind of food you like, and you're staying at this random, you know, I think it was like a Crown Plaza hotel, and, you know, you're not sleeping in your bed, and the pillow's lumpy, and the fans are yelling at you, and you sort of have it in the back of your head. You don't, you only need to steal a game, so if, if you go one and one, that's okay. And then Charlotte went home. And remember, this is a different arena. This was a big Charlotte Coliseum. This wasn't like the nicest arena in the NBA. But I just remember it was like a completely different team. And I saw those guys, you know, 24 hours earlier, and they're sort of moping in the, you know, at the strange arena. And the other team's fans are yelling at them, and they feel like they're not getting the official calls. And then 24 hours later, everyone slept in their own bed. And it's like they go to practice, and it's just a completely – they're projecting a, a completely different uh, sort of presence. I, I was really struck by that in the piece of yeah. how much difference it is for athletes. And, you know, it's the same way as you know, you're on a business trip, and, uh, you know, you just want to get home, and you're delayed at the airport, and you're not the same person, and it's very much the same for athletes. Yeah, it's crazy how that works. It might not always be the home court advantage, like actually playing in the arena versus maybe just being in the comfort of your own home and your own bed and the routines that you have. And that plays just as much as a factor, I think, as maybe just playing in front of a, a raucous crowd. Before we go here, John, one last question. What was your biggest takeaway or your best story or your best memory after spending a week with the Hornets here and having that access that m not many people get to have? I mean, it could be about a specific player or just the team as a whole. Just when you look back on this time, what's one thing that kind of sticks out the most? Oh, man, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think it's just what a normal workplace this is. And we all, oh, these are superstar athletes. It's the NBA playoff. It's on national TV. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, there's the jerk in the office and there's the boss that most people like and there's, difficulties and views and Percy Hawkins just wants to take his kid to school and Baron Davis is there. Baron Davis I should, should add sort of we ended up sort of becoming friends and friendly and he was he was awesome then as, as a rookie as, as a young player and, and stayed fantastic but you sort of have you know you've got the young player that everybody wants to help along and you've got the veteran that's just trying to hang on to his job and Scott Burrell and I remember thinking like these are superstar athletes and they're they're taller than I am and they are more athletic and they can shoot better. But this isn't a whole lot different than like when the rest of us come home from work. It's at the end of the day, these are just guys going to a job site and uh, they are glamorous and well-paid. But I, I just remember thinking like, it's just another job at some level. Um, but the, the team was great. And uh, I, I really have fond. They, they did not win that series, but uh, no. I really have fond recollection of that week with, um, with the Hornets. All right, John, I'll be sure to link this article in the podcast description because as Hornets fans that are listening to this podcast, it's, it's really good to relive that moment. It's an awesome read. Uh, one of the biggest things that I enjoyed about reading that was the fact that you did a very good job of articulating about the emotions and the roller coaster that this team had and the, and the series that the Hornets had. And I, like I said, as I got on or before the call, I feel like I read this as a kid. I just remember the the cover to the Sports Illustrated. But John, thanks again for joining me today. I really do appreciate your time. Go ahead and plug anything you've got going on right now, even if it's tennis related. I, I'm a tennis fan, and I'm sure we've got some tennis listeners out there. Oh man, um, no, I don't. We're we're still doing Tennis Channel Live, uh, noon to three Eastern. Um, <laughs> What else? Am I, I've got a, a year away or so. We a couple months from now, I'll have a book uh, on the summer of '84 called "Glory Days." But um, no, it was just really fun. I mean, I, I had man, I, I thought about this article in a long time. But yeah. uh, 
I, I, have, a, I have a smile on my face uh, rehashing it with you. So, so thanks for that. Well, good. Thank you very much. Uh, for John, I am Richie. Take care. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.